Amen. What a blessing. I don't know about you, but when I sing that song, when I hear that song, I feel like I could just close my eyes and just fall asleep under the peacefulness of what God is speaking over us. But I also know sometimes it feels like life is not quite matching up to that blessing. You ever feel that? Sometimes maybe you feel like God isn't living up to his end of that blessing. What about all those things he spoke over us? What about about all that good that he said? Maybe sometimes you feel like you're not living up to your end of that blessing. You know, how do we understand the blessing of God in our lives? How do we live in light of his blessing at the moments that we feel like we're stuck in the wilderness? Because if you remember last week, Chad mentioned that this book that we're going through, the book of Numbers, its original Hebrew title is actually In the Wilderness. And we're breaking this book down into three wildernesses that God's people are going through. And each of those kind of have a thematic element to them. So the last one is going to be the wilderness of Moab. That's one of temptation. Before that will be Paran, a wilderness of testing. But we start in the wilderness of Sinai, a place where God is preparing his people, where he's teaching them what it looks like to live with God at the center of our lives in the wilderness. To live in light of his blessing no matter what the circumstances are that are going on around us. And that is where we find ourselves today in Numbers chapters 5 and 6. Now, if numbers are exciting for you, then you hear that word and you're probably like, let's roll, you know. This is crazy or interesting. Depends. You decide for yourself. At Christmas break, I'm sitting in in my dad's recliner and I look over at the coffee table where he's got the books that he likes to read and the top book that's like this thick and the thin pages so you can fit a bunch of them in there. The history of mathematics. I know my dad, so this does not surprise me, but I'm looking at that book. I'm like, that's what we read for fun. (laughs) So if you love math and you love numbers, if you have a favorite mathematician, then maybe all you need to hear is numbers. I'm in. For the rest of us, we want to know what it's like in the wilderness. That feels much more like my real life. And what God is going to give us in the chapters today, especially chapter 5, it's a little bit strange. And so it helps to know up front that what God's doing in chapter 5 is he's essentially giving us three different case studies that ask us this question. Will I seek separation from sin? And so each of those, while they may sound strange, kind of is falling into a different category. And I actually pulled these right out of the Blue Letter Bible app in David Guzik's commentary. Really helped me put handles on this chapter. Am I willing to seek separation from the effects of sin, the damage sin causes, and even the suspicion of sin. So let's jump right into the first one there. In chapter 5, in the first few verses, this is what it says. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, 
So the children of Israel did. Now, even that last line is like a really good sign to start this book. You won't hear that a lot in the book of Numbers. But in this moment, as the Lord said, so they did. Okay, but what's going on here? Well, I'm going to shortcut this just a little bit. <laughs> because the things that it lists very quickly here, the leper, the discharge, when you become in contact with a corpse, he deals with all of those things in much more detail in Leviticus which we just happened to do verse by verse a couple of years ago. So if you want more detail on each of those, you can actually pull up the Horizon CC app. You can go to verse by verse, check out Leviticus 13 about the leper, 15 where Doug Daly, bless his heart, dealt with the discharge. And whoever becomes defiled by a corpse is part of the instructions for the priests in Leviticus chapter 21. But here's the point of listing these all right here. You see, when God is talking about what happens in our lives and how sin affects us, it's not just the obvious things, but he's talking about individual sin, right? Things that go against God's standard for our lives, but also all of the effects of sin on a broken world. That the things he's listing here, like death and disease, did not exist before sin. And someday, in eternity, they will not exist again. The reason that we deal with those on such a regular basis is because the world has been broken by sin. And so what he's giving them here is a physical picture of the spiritual reality that sin pollutes you. It makes you sick. And so the question he's giving them is, are you willing to separate yourselves from the things that make you spiritually sick? Do I spend more time trying to explain them away or justify them? Or am I willing to look God in the eyes and say, you're right, I need to remove these things from my life before they make it worse. That's the picture he's giving them here, to separate from the effects of sin. It's really interesting as you read through the New Testament in Jesus' life, you notice that like Isaiah 53, for example, predicts that the Messiah, when he suffers, will bear our infirmities, our sicknesses. Jesus comes and says, hey, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. So we want to separate from the effects of sin. That's the first one. The second one is that we also want to separate ourselves from the damage that sin causes. Because the reality is, the, the, the Bible will say this too, nobody sins to themselves. When you sin, it damages you. It damages your relationship with God but it also damages our relationship with other people. So he gives one specific kind of right up front and center example of how this can happen. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full plus one fifth of it and give it to the one he has wronged. So the specific situation he seems to be thinking of here is that someone has stolen from another person, defrauded another person. They seem to have also denied that under oath. And then this phrase, and that person is guilty, the idea there is like they're already guilty, but it's when that person feels guilty. Right? Because they're not going to come and confess if they don't feel like they did anything wrong. But at the moment that it starts to weigh on their heart, 
at the moment that they start to get a little bit of a cold sweat about what they've done, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin and shall make restitution. You see, here's the picture here. You notice that it says, against the Lord. That this sin from one person against another, every sin against another person is also a sin against the Lord. And so the solution that you see here is not only to repair the relationship with God, but to repair the relationship with other people too. That the idea behind the confession is I have to come to God and admit, God, I know that what I did was wrong, but also to think about, now how do I go to that person who's hurting? Because remember, he just brought these people out of Egypt. He's setting them aside to do something special through them in history. He wants them to be different, and he wants them to be pure, and he wants them to be unified. And so people are doing this kind of stuff to each other. It doesn't just make you angry, but it starts to break up the entire people of God. And I actually think it's kind of interesting because in verse 8, he goes on, like, if, if anybody was going to try to make excuses, well, Lord, I, I, you know, I would try to make it right, but I can't find them, or, or, or maybe he died. But God says, well, hey, if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, like maybe because they were already dead, well, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord, for the priest, in addition to the ram of the atonement with which atonement is made for him. Every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel which they bring to the priest shall be his, and every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives the priest shall be his. So essentially what God's saying here is, it's not only with other people, but it's with God himself that we need to repair the relationship. And I love that in verse 8, right alongside the restitution, like somebody who has, has committed an open and flagrant sin also gets to bring a ram for atonement. That there's still forgiveness available for whatever it is that has happened that has broken this relationship between two people. All right, so what do we do with this? Because I told you that each of these kind of function like a case study. So part of what God's doing here is he's giving a very specific example. Hey, I know these kinds of things happen when they happen. Here's specifically how to handle it. But remember last week, Chad pointed out to us that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the book of Numbers is for us. So before we say, well, that was a different time, you know, and they were before Jesus. And so, you know, they, it's interesting history, but that's not for us. Well, what does Paul mean then when he says that that was written for our benefit, that we would learn from them? Well, there's a principle behind this that Jesus actually picks up in his own ministry. There's a time where Jesus teaches, hey, if you come to the temple to make your sacrifice, and when you get there, you realize, oh, I got this mess between me and this other person. Just leave your sacrifice there. Leave your offering. First, first, go and make it right with that person. Like, that's how important our human relationships are to God. Our unity as the people of God. First, Get right with that person. Then come back and we'll do the offering. Just like in Numbers, Jesus shows how closely tied repairing the relationship with God is to repairing the relationship with other people. Now, I know that's difficult. And I've wrestled through this in a number of different ways over the last few years. And sometimes, you know, if you're talking to me in conversation, I'll admit, like, I'm a recovering legalist. So it is easy for me to read something like this and go completely sideways trying to think of like, what is every time I hurt somebody's feelings on the playground when I was four so I can try to fix that thing just in case God asks, right? And just get kind of like tunnel vision about it. So I was processing this through with my mentor a few years ago, and part of what he showed me was that when you get to the New Testament, 
you remember how Jesus describes the summary of the entire law? Love God and love other people. So you come back to a passage like this and you say, okay, if this whole thing is really about loving God and loving others, then if I hurt someone else, what does it look like to love them instead? Let that be the guiding principle. Think how loving it is when you're able to go to somebody and say, hey, I, I know that I did this thing wrong. And they're probably completely braced against you, but you say, no, I just, you know what? Uh, that doesn't matter to me anymore. What matters to me now is that we can fix this, that we can make this right. I want you to know that I'm sorry. So an amazing example of this. I was, I was talking to a woman a few weeks ago who has had some really broken relationship issues uh, with a brother of hers to the point like, you know, not seeing each other at holidays, all those kinds of things. And having heard the story, I know I'm only hearing one side of it, but having heard the story, I'm thinking, yeah, it's his fault. <laughs> like, he needs to apologize, right? So what she told me was that she decided she needed to apologize to him. And I'm thinking, not sure what for, but, you know, go on. And she described how she thought back through their relationship, even when they were kids, and just different times in her life where she realized that she was generally overly critical or overly controlling or overly self-centered or whatever it is in their relationship and decided, hey, whatever else is going on now, I feel like that's something that God has shown me and I want to show my brother that I'm sorry. So she set up a meeting with him sat down with him and just walked through a couple of the examples that she could think of herself where she just basically said, hey, I know I haven't always been a good big sister and I just, I wanted to say, I'm sorry for those things. So miracle number one, he accepted the meeting. <laughs> they sat down together and talked through this. Miracle number two, he received the apology from her and the thing I, I never would have imagined as she was telling this story, he apologized to her too. They saw each other for the holidays this year. See, that's the kind of healing that God wants in our relationships. And, and you and I both know you don't control the other person. But she felt like in that moment, she had something. Rather than trying to decide if his sin was worse or any of those things, she felt like there was something that she could go and make right. And I love that story because, listen, I know, I know it's hard. And I've had places in my life where I've had to go back to a person that I hurt. Maybe it was years ago, but I know that thing's still festering. I know that it's still churning inside of me. I know that we're trying to like avoid each other when we see each other and just play it off like, well, let bygones be bygones. Actually, no, I, I got to apologize. It can be painful. It can be scary. It can make my heart rate go like this a little bit. But man, is it liberating. And there will be times that you see how it is so healing. And a person you thought maybe you'd never talk to again becomes a friend. See, that is the picture that God is painting for us. That we don't just have to live with the damage sin causes. We can actually separate, separate from it. We can actually heal from it. So in addition to the effects of sin and the damage that sin causes, the third example he's going to give here is that he wants us to separate even from the suspicion of sin. Now this is easily, let's just own it, this is easily the weirdest part of this passage today. So I'm going to read you the first part of this, and, and then we'll try to explain a little bit of what's going on here. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it's concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. Okay, what is going on here? Guess what? It's going to get weirder. So we're going to take this little weird chunk first. <laughs> All right, so essentially what he's saying is, hey, what, what should I do? If I think my wife cheated on me, but there's no proof and nobody caught her, and I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty suspicious. So what God is setting up for them in this kind of strange situation is that he wants to be able to remove the suspicion of sin for somewhat obvious reasons. Because if sin has happened, if something has happened, God's going to say, let's deal with this. Right? That has to be dealt with. But if nothing has happened... He doesn't want suspicion running rampant through his people. That now trust is broken between a husband and wife for no reason, just because he gets anxious and suspicious all the time. So how are we going to deal with it? So what's kind of weird is that archaeologists have discovered that in some of the cultures around Israel at that time, they would have like almost magical rituals where they would do really strange things that are essentially unrelated to the problem at hand and then just trust the magic to prove whether somebody was innocent or not. And so some of that begins to creep into Israel. And so what scholars think is that part of what God is doing in this chapter is he's taking one of those things and changing it so that Israel doesn't think they should act like every other nation around them, And so that they know that there's no magic ritual to determine whether somebody has done right or done wrong, but that they need to turn to God. Are you tracking with me so far? So the question is, this is the rest of chapter 5. Why does this get such a big piece? Well, part of it is because those earlier issues have been dealt with in more detail in Leviticus. But the other part of it is because God is so specific about the purity and the unity that he wants among his people. And one of the best examples that God uses for that throughout the entire Bible is marriage. That's why marriage gets so much airtime. That's why sexual sin is taken so seriously. Because God wants marriage itself to be a picture of his relationship with us. With purity, with unity, without suspicion. So here is the ritual that God is going to give them. You've seen the setup. If something has happened, or even if it hasn't, but the husband is jealous, step one, bring his wife to the priest. So because it's the rest of the chapter, I'm going to summarize this for you just a little bit. The first thing that happens is the husband brings his wife to the priest, and they bring a grain offering. So right off the bat, you can't just make accusations willy-nilly. If if I really think something's happened here, it's going to cost me something just to bring her to the priest. Now part of that is because in the cultures around them, Women had literally no rights. You don't need proof. It doesn't matter if there's evidence. You do what you want. You accuse her, fine, we punish her. The man wins every time. God says, that's broken, that's inappropriate, that doesn't honor me, and we're not doing that here. So if you think she's done something, you have to bring her to me. And it's going to cost you something. 
Because we're not going to have suspicion running rampant in the camp and making willy-nilly accusations. So step one, bring her to the priest, but bring the grain offering. Then she holds the grain offering in her hands while the priest takes some of the holy water from the tabernacle, pours it into an earthen vessel. He takes the vessel and he adds to it dirt from the tabernacle floor, sprinkles that into the water. Now we have dirty holy water. This is weird, guys. I'm just, I'm just going to own this. Okay, so now we have the wife standing before the priest holding her grain offering. He's holding the dirty holy water, and he makes her take a vow that if she is innocent, she'll be fine. But if she is guilty, she will come under a curse. And the curse is described as her thigh will rot and her belly will swell, which appears to be a euphemism for no longer being able to have children. So she essentially has to stand before the priest and agree to this. And so you notice, like, all along the way in this ritual, there are moments to be like, actually, before we go any further, I should probably just tell you what happened. (laughs) Right? But if I'm innocent, I'm probably rolling my eyes like, I cannot believe my husband brought me here. But okay, let's do it. Yes, I'm, I'm fine taking that vow. Then the priest will actually take a scroll, write out the curse, scrape the ink into the dirty water. So now we have dirty, inky, holy water. And then... She drinks it. And the ritual is described that when she drinks it, if she's innocent, nothing happens. And if she's guilty, the curse comes upon her, her thigh rots and her belly swells. Don't you love how practical the Bible is for our daily lives? (laughs) What in the world is going on here? All right, so look at how this passage ends. This description in chapter 5, if you jump down to verse 28... This is how God describes kind of the conclusion of this thing. That if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy when a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt." So there's a couple things just kind of hidden in here. One of them is this phrase, before the Lord. This is what makes this ritual different than everyone else around them. It's not magic water. It's not magic dirt. It's not magic ink. Every step along the way, it says that this is done before the Lord, and it is the Lord who will declare innocent or guilty. That everything about their lives is centered on the Lord. Not only that, but this is intended, as strange as it sounds, this is intended as a protection for the rights of the woman. That if she comes to this moment, she gets to stand before God, the perfect righteous judge. And if she is innocent, God himself will speak that over her. And there is nothing anyone else can say about it, no matter how suspicious they feel. That God has stood up on her behalf. In fact, you notice... In, in this, that last verse, the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman sh- shall bear her guilt. Kind of the reverse implication is that if it turns out she was innocent, the man may not be so free from iniquity for bringing her here in the first place. And you can imagine what he's feeling walking home if she's innocent. I'm sorry, I made you drink the dirty water. Please don't remind me of this every day for the rest of our lives, right? 
So as strange as it is, what God is trying to demonstrate for us is one, protecting the rights of the innocent, but two, separating ourselves from the suspicion of sin. You see, that's really how all of chapter 5 could be summarized. Will I seek separation from the effects, the damage, and the suspicion of sin? And for some of us, that's really as far as we get in our, our journey with God. You know, maybe the tradition that you grow up, like, grew up in, like all of the focus was here, how not to do bad things. And that's really important because chapter 6 does not make sense if we don't first understand that God wants us to be separate from these things. He wants us to be different than the world around us. But if we stop there, we're missing out on a whole lot of fun because chapter 6 is going to ask us a very different question. In fact, look at the first two verses of chapter 6. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. And he's going to go on and give details for this, but I want you to see that phrase, separate themselves to the Lord. Not only that they are separating from sin, but that they have an opportunity to separate themselves to God. So what's described in this chapter is that for a specific season, for a specific amount of time, often for a specific reason, a man or a woman could make this vow uniquely to serve God at that moment in their lives. So let me summarize for you a little bit of, of what that meant for them. Because it was incredibly specific. Like very detailed instructions. So let me summarize. Because at the beginning of their separation... They would separate, they would abstain from wine and similar drink. They would abstain from wine vinegar. Basically anything that came from the fruit of the vine, not for you while you're under a Nazarite vow. On top of that, they would abstain from cutting their hair. So you think of examples like Samson. Samson was under a Nazarite vow, so the hair just grows and grows. So whether this was six weeks, six months, six years... Let it grow. Long flowing Fabio kind of locks, right? Then they would also have to avoid dead bodies. That meant even if a close family member died, you couldn't attend their funeral, you couldn't help with, with the body at all. It also describes that if at any point during the time of their separation, one of these things happens even by accident. So like if I say, God, I'm setting myself apart for you for the next six years. I want to serve in the tabernacle and I'm going to avoid all these things. And, and that's my commitment to you, Lord. And accidentally comes into contact with a dead body somehow. If you were on like the second to last day of your six years and that happens, you start over. Could you imagine? I mean, that's how serious they were about separating themselves to God. And when they reached the end of their time... Then there were other stipulations. So I'll summarize these for you as well. Because after the time of their separation, then they had all of these offerings to bring. A burnt offering, which was a male lamb. A sin offering, which is a ewe lamb. A peace offering, which was a ram. Grain offerings, drink offerings. And then finally, it's not that, hey, you did a great job and so now you can get a haircut again, go back to looking like normal. Remember, men and women, at the end of your time, shave your head. And burn the hair. That there's still like a physical mark that obviously sets them apart from the people around them. And you notice here, it's not only the time commitment. 
But look how costly this is financially to make this commitment to serve God this way. It is a beautiful picture of a man or a woman who loves their God and wants to serve him uniquely. In fact, look at just verses 8 and 21. It says, all the days of his separation he shall be holy to the Lord. This is the law of the Nazarite, whose vows to the Lord, the offering for his separation. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide, according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. That word holy, that's a key word. And that phrase, his separation, that's a key for us too. In fact, what you may not even think about is that the New Testament is constantly using the word holy to describe Christ followers. You remember we saw in, in Hebrews that he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified, set apart, made holy. It's the same word. It's the same concept. That although we don't live in the time of numbers and although we don't take a Nazarite vow and although I'm trying to grow my hair out but it's going the opposite direction, yet we as Christ followers are set apart, holy to God. With the Nazarite, you could tell right away. With some long hair, why are they not having a glass of wine when everybody else does? You would know right away. Are there things about our lives that clearly set us apart from the way everybody else lives? Not only set apart from sin, but set apart to serve God. Because here's the thing, if you are a Christ follower, you are already set apart. You are empowered and gifted by God's Holy Spirit specifically to serve him, to serve his people, and to serve this world. And that's why you'll often hear us talk about what does it look like to serve God? Sometimes we'll use the, the, the terminology like here, near, and far. And I love that because there are opportunities right here, right here at Horizon to serve God like a Nazarite. And you don't, you don't have to grow your hair out and you don't need a ewe lamb, you don't need any of that stuff. But because Jesus Christ is in you, there are opportunities right here. In fact, one of them I just keep thinking a lot about lately is, is with our kids and our students. I mean, some of you know because you, you signed them in this morning. You dropped them off. They're your kids. They're your grandkids. You see them running in the hallway and they like to hide under the stairs and eat all the bagels and all those things that kids do. <laughs> there are kids and students in this building right now that if you are a mature follower of Christ, if you love Jesus, if you're learning what it's like to grow and to follow him, they need to learn that from you. You can serve right here with our kids and students. In fact, I'd say if you have a heart for that, would you please come talk to me? Talk to Ryan Ventura. Talk to Chad. Talk to whoever you want. We'll, we'll get you connected. That's an opportunity right here. There are oppor opportunities nearby as well. You know, we're having more and more conversations with inner parish ministries. That how do we help families serve? How do we help women serve, men serve? What are the things that we can do to help serve the underserved right here in our neighborhoods? Interparish Ministries, part of the reason we partner with them is because one of their locations is literally right around the corner here in Newtown. Or City Gospel Mission. 
We have teams going down multiple times a month, and I, and I love this. If you've never been down there, it's a great way to just kind of put a toe in the water of serving and, and get to know some other people from Horizon. And they are serving meals and having conversations and sometimes getting a chance to pray with people and even, even leading devotions. And we've got guys that have, have taken some of our Bible study materials from Horizon, using them with people who are homeless in our city. So if you're interested in that, check out the dates and just pick one. The people who are there every single time are so wonderful and so nice. Don't even worry if you don't know anybody. You will have fun. You know, but it's not just here and near. It's also far. And there's a team right now trying to figure out what does it look like to take a trip, a medical missions trip to Belize in the middle of COVID. Can we still make this happen? Just a couple of weeks ago, the kind of thing that, that like, I'm a long-range planner, so I hear these things. I'm like, we'll never figure it out in time. And, you know, 24 hours later, we had like 15 guys driving down to Kentucky after all of those tornadoes partnered up with Matthew 25 and taking resources down to help families and towns in need. And guys, it's not just like a social justice pat on the back. Hey, I made the world a better place. It's in the name of Jesus, with the love of Christ, because he cares about every person. So although we don't necessarily take a Nazarite vow, we can think about what does it look like to separate myself to serve God? Because that's really how all of five and six hold together. It's, it's first how I'm separating from sin, but it's also how I'm separating to God. Like this is my commitment to him. And then at the end of chapter six, it brings us all the way back around to the thing that is like the foundation of all of it. Look at verse 22 as we hear the blessing. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them. Okay, I, I love just that bit right there. Because that means that this is not like kind of what Moses hopes is true for the people. It's not sort of what Aaron would like to say. This is God giving specific instruction. Moses, you say this to Aaron so he can say this to the people because I want them to know that I said this to them, says the Lord your God. So from the Lord to Moses to Aaron to the people, everything you're about to hear is God's plan for his people in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land yet. When God speaks his blessing over you, Oh, it will absolutely be true in heaven. Like that is a guarantee that he has set before you. We saw in Hebrews how our souls are anchored there through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But you don't have to wait for the promised land. The blessing comes in the wilderness of Sinai. And here is what the Lord says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. You see, when he says he will bless and keep, that's a word of protection. That his face will shine upon you that's a description of the presence of God so close to his people that they see his glory. When he says that's how he will put his name on the children of Israel, Christ follower, he has done this for you. 
when you are called Christian, not because you attend church or because you fill out that circle on a survey, but because Jesus Christ is your Lord and King and he has forgiven everything you've done past, present, and future. When you are called Christ follower, he has put his name on you. And a few months ago, I was talking to a buddy of mine. We were having lunch and and he was struggling with this idea that, yes, I understand that God can save me, but does he really care about what's going on in my wilderness, in my everyday life? Like, am I really supposed to bug him with these little things that I pray about? Or like, aren't there bigger things for God to deal with? And one of the things that he said to me was, it's, it's hard for me to really wrap my head around the fact that God could care about me individually when there are 7 billion people on the planet. And a lot of them probably have bigger problems than I do. So here's what I love about the way that God speaks this blessing. You see the word you? Bless you. Keep you. Make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. Lift his countenance on you and give you peace. Every single one of those is in the singular. What that means is this is not God saying, Israel, in general, may the Lord bless you. Hey, in general, Horizon Community Church, may the Lord bless you. Hey, Christians, kind of in general, wherever you're at, may the Lord bless you. Now, you realize the instruction that he's giving them is that every single person who comes and stands before the high priest, often because they need forgiveness, will hear eye to eye, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So you can fill your name in there because we have a better high priest that Jesus Christ looks you in the eye and says, the Lord bless you, Drew. Keep you. Fill in your name. Because then you realize, like Neil mentioned, the blessing isn't really like, how much did I make this year? How, How are my stocks doing? How's my health doing? All those things are nice. All those things can be blessings. We absolutely thank God for them. But the blessing is Jesus Christ. I had to come to terms with this a little bit yesterday because I know for you Bengals fans, first playoff win in 31 years, congratulations. That is awesome. And I don't know if you watched the Bills game. That was the more important of the two yesterday. We did something that no one has ever done before. That's the first game in NFL history where a team never punted, never kicked a field goal, and never turned the ball over because we scored touchdowns every single time. That is probably the most fun I've ever had watching my team kick the Patriots in the rear. Guess what? That's not the blessing. As much fun as that is, that's not it. The blessing is Jesus Christ, your high priest, looking you in the eye and saying it to you by name. So I'd encourage you to ask yourself this question. Will I live in the light of the Lord's blessing? Will I live in the confidence of his will for me that this is what he wants for you? Will I live in the certainty of his grace and forgiveness? And if you will, then I'd encourage you 
Where do you need to separate from sin? From the effects or the damage or the suspicion? And where can you separate to serve God? Let's pray that way now. Lord God of Israel, God of your church, our God, what can we say but thank you for speaking this blessing over us? Thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you. And Lord, I just pray over this community, over each man and woman here that you know individually that you can look right into their eyes, Lord, that you would show us the places where sin may be hurting us, that you want it to just be removed from our lives, and that you would show us where you have empowered us and gifted us to serve you, that we might know the joy of living with you and your blessing at the center of our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for hanging out with us in numbers this morning. I'd love to see you guys back next week. Thanks for coming.